Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, early in the New Testament. Old Testament. It is on the back of your outline. However, you'd have to have really good eyes to see that. Tried to fit it all on there for you, just because I realize not everyone will have their Bible with them. Uh, but uh, please note that it is there listed on the back of your outline. Uh, you should probably be able to see a lot better in your copy of the scriptures. Naomi, at this point, before chap- just going into chapter 2, in all her understandable bitterness, uh, has returned to Israel with one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth. It's been 10 years since Naomi has been there, maybe a little bit more. She left in the midst of a famine to go to Moab of all places with her husband and two sons, and her, her husband tragically died. Then after her sons take Moabite women as their wives, her two sons die also. She now returns with nothing but a daughter-in-law who is a Moabite woman to boot. Hear God's word, Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for just a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping. And go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground. And she said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me in how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward will be given by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants." And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, and eat some bread, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. She ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean. And do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out 
which he had gleaned. And it was about an epa of barley. She took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave, gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the, forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Beside, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, cleaning until the end, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's pray. Lord God, you are clearly with us, your children, ordaining and shaping our every step. We advance in no uncertain, unprepared path in our life. Our whole existence from the cradle to the grave is divinely constructed by you, prepared in your eternal mind, purpose, and counsel. Lord, help us to derive security and comfort from this great reality where there is no divergence in your path, no event that bends or shades or burdens it. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. In the midst of this chapter, there is a phrase, there is a metaphor used, speaking of taking refuge under one's wings. This is derived, of course, from observed animal behavior. You have seen birds hovering over their young and protecting their young. Uh, but this is more than that. It's not just these helpless little birds who really can't leave the nest yet and the mother putting her wings over. This is one who, from outside of the nest, seeks refuge takes refuge under the wings of God. This important picture of salvation, of redemption, of conversion, is what fuels the rest of this book on providence. Uh, the book of Ruth is about so many things, isn't it? I mean, the providence of God is the overarching theme. But you have in the midst of it redemption. You have dealing with the difficulties of life, tragedy, bitterness towards God. There's a wonderful love story. Uh, anyone who reads the scriptures and says that it's boring need to read the book of Ruth. It's a wonderful romantic love story. Uh, when you see Boaz take notice of this woman and become attracted to her because of her inner character and then pursue her in a wonderful picture of redemption. It's a wonderful story on so many levels. But don't lose sight of the fact that in the midst of God's providence, even his hard providence, is his redemption. Uh, he moves these things towards the redemption of his people. And that's going to become uh, the springboard for the rest of the book. This simple phrase, Boaz recognizing what happens in the life of Ruth, she has taken refuge under the wings of God. I want us to consider for a moment as we catch up uh, to speed with this book uh, some character traits that we can note in three main characters, uh, starting with Ruth, moving to Boaz, and then considering where Naomi ends up at the end of chapter 2 compared to where she was in chapter 1. Now let me be clear, from an interpretive standpoint, this is a narrative. Uh, you have to be careful when you do character studies and, and make commands out of the characters that, we're there, that are there. I hope you understand what I'm saying. Uh, but what we have is a clear profession of faith on the part, definitely, of all three of these characters. 
Uh, so because of that, we see godly people that we can observe and see how what their lives uh, emulate, something we could follow, something we could see is in line with God's word. And that's what we have here for sure with these three people. So that's the approach we'll take as we consider it. Now remember the hard providence of God that leads us uh, through the first chapter. You really have a difficult chapter. In fact, if it weren't for the last several verses of the chapter, it would be one of the more difficult chapters, in my opinion, in the whole Bible. Really second only to Job is Naomi, when you consider her life and what has happened. The pain of famine chases her and her husband and her two sons, her only two sons, out of Israel. Famine's not a good thing. Difficult, painful. And then to be so humiliated is to have to go to Moab, one of the places that's most hated, most hated by the Israelites. So they have to go to Moab. They have no choice. They have to find food and find a new life. And the hard providence of God is there. It's clear. It's suffering, tragedy, difficulty. She's there not very long, and her husband dies. She's widowed in a foreign land. There are not many prospects for a widow, even if she were in Israel. But then to go to a foreign land with people who worship a foreign god uh, would leave her even more destitute. There she is with just her two sons. It seems like a good thing, but her two sons marry Moabite women. And it's true, the name will be carried on, but they're Moabite women. These are women who are not uh, first introduced to the living God. And so now she has a situation where her two sons have two Moabite wives, and she's living, she's sustaining herself. But then, within a 10-year period, both sons die. Now she is left without any of the men in her life that she left Israel with. She is a widower, a widow, and she has lost both children. Now she has two daughters-in-law who she tries to convince, go back to your gods, go back to your families. And without a lot of convincing, one of the daughters-in-law leaves. The hard providence of God in the life of Naomi. But she realizes she only has one choice. She's going to have to go back where she has some relatives. No one in Moab is going to be gracious to her. So she's going to have to go back, and it so happens, providentially at this time, God has lifted the famine, and the harvest had started, and the word had gotten out that food was uh, plenteous now back in Israel. So she realizes she has to go back. And as she goes back, Ruth, one of her daughters-in-law, says, I'm coming with you. She says, don't come with me. Go back to your family. Go back to your gods. Go Stay here. It's better for you here. But then Ruth says something, something that is profound. It's covenantal. It's commitment-oriented. And it's basically saying to Naomi, don't try to talk me out of this. My covenant is with God. There is a change in the heart of Ruth caused by God as, he turn, as she turns to Naomi and says, my God will be your God. And we have the conversion of Ruth and her profession. It's a powerful profession. Even though, even though Naomi is bitter and probably not the best witness at that moment, Ruth sees the hand of God and turns to Naomi and says in the first chapter 16 and verse 17, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth basically says, my mind is made up. This is a spiritual commitment. I am following the God of Israel. It wasn't just about Naomi. Naomi is who introduced her to the living God, but now she had relationship covenantally with the living God and was going to go back to the land of the living God. She had made her, her mind by God's grace and had followed Naomi back. And believe me, if it was going to be tough for, any, for Naomi to go back to Israel, how much more difficult would it be for this Moabite woman? 
a widow to go back to this land with her. So the storyline continues in chapter 2, and it's very straightforward. It, you can see how it is developing. Naomi goes back, but what is wonderful is to see now the fruit of Naomi, of Naomi and Ruth's faith work itself out. In particular, Ruth, who's really a new believer in many sense, senses of the word. And so she goes back, and she doesn't sit around and wait for food to be made for her or to be served, but rather she shows uh, all sorts of initiative and industry and hard work and humility in order to make a living for herself and for her mother-in-law. I would suggest to you that these things are evidences or fruits of her faith, of the change in her heart and her newfound commitment in the living God. The, second ver or the third verse of chapter 2, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. One of my favorite verses in the whole book, She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. This is clearly a literary device trying to explain or show that the exact opposite of what is being said is true. In other words, it didn't just happen. It's by divine appointment. And this is embodied in a greater book and story about God's providence. The story could not play out any better. Boaz then takes notice. Interest between the two begins. And it is clear by this providential meeting that life is about to change for Ruth and Naomi. And I want us to consider then the three main characters. And remember, yes, this story is about God's providence. It is about human tragedy, for sure. It's about bitterness towards God. But it's a love story also. And ultimately, at the core, the core of this book is our relationship with God in his saving of us, in his redeeming us, his gracious salvation, his loving embrace, his mighty fortress. The story takes place the way it does because of the work of conversion that God does in the life of a Moabite woman. I want you to consider the fruit of Ruth's faith for a moment. Uh, the profession of her faith. We've already looked at chapter 1 and those words she says to Naomi as they leave. But also I want you to consider what Boaz notices about her. Boaz sees her working and then asks his foreman, who is that young woman? Now mind you, there are other women there. Uh, but she stands out for whatever reason as being different than the other women. It could have been the clothes she was wearing. Uh, he didn't recognize her because he knew the other women who were workers there or relatives normally would be the case. And recognizes, doesn't recognize her and says, who is this woman? And so the worker tells him who she is. And he had heard, because remember, when they came back to Israel, Naomi and Ruth, the ladies were all murmuring about it. Can you imagine that? The ladies were all talking about, hey, did you see Naomi back? And Naomi says to them, hey, call me Mara. God has dealt treacherously with me. And so the word was out about Naomi being back and that she had brought this Moabite woman with her. You could only imagine what the church gossips were saying about that. Can you believe Naomi has the nerve to come back here with... And so now she's out gleaning in the field that happens to be Boaz's. And Boaz takes note of her and immediately bestows special favor upon her. And then look at verse 10 and you will see what I would say is an external confirmation of what had happened inwardly in the heart of Ruth. She, in verse 10, fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Notice what Boaz says. He answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, in how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. He's impressed by her initiative here, but please notice in verse 12, he makes a statement that I think forms an important crux of this whole chapter. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, 
the God of Israel. So she has exhibited all these various traits of nobility and uh, respect and honoring her mother-in-law. And then notice he says, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is a, a position of vulnerability. She has come to God to take refuge. She has not come to God to make him better or do things to earn salvation. Even here in the Old Testament, we get this picture of one who runs to the refuge of God, and then all the actions that she does and partakes of flow from having taken refuge in God. Let me be clear, brothers and sisters, because we fall into moralism very quickly. We think we do all these things, and we gain God's favor. What is clear here is that she runs to God, takes refuge in him, and it's from that position that she's able to do these things. Far different than the way most of us think. Most of us think, okay, God, you saved me. I prayed the prayer or however it is that you uh, are sure that you're a believer. Now I'm going to go and do these things to prove to you, God, that I'm yours. And that is not at all the, the model of the scriptures. And it's not, it's not even so here in, in a very primitive form in the Old Testament when Ruth, who has run to the living God when she was back in Moab, recognizing he is true. And now everything she does has to be seen in light of the faith God has given her in him. That's what we have. In this wonderful phrase, to be taken under one's wing, or to hide, or to take refuge under the wings of God. Boaz notes her character and clearly sees it evident in her life. She sees the loyalty to Naomi. He sees the loyalty to Naomi. He attributes this loyalty to her high character, which has been produced by her taking refuge in the living God. And this wonderful picture of taking refuge under God's wings is not new in the Bible. Here's Psalm 57, verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destructions pass by. Later in the same psalm, and that, that mirrors her case exactly. The same psalm, second verse. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. It's a cry to God to take refuge. And brothers and sisters, friends, I hope you have taken refuge under the wings of God. Because there's a destruction that comes just based on the sinfulness of our being. That will come, and our only escape from that is taking refuge under the wings of God. And we know more clearly now how God worked that out, where that refuge is to be found in particular in Christ. Taking refuge in God is the same way as saying to take refuge in Christ. To hide under God's wings means to come to Christ. This is what we have for us, so clearly evidenced in the life of Ruth. But also, not only is her profession of faith notable, uh, but also, which flows from God's converting her, but also, please notice the initiative that flows out of her being, out of her relationship with the Lord. In the second verse, as soon as they come back to uh, the, the land of Israel, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let's sit around and eat bonbons. That's not at all what she says. She doesn't sit and wait for someone to give her a handout. Uh, she says, let me go to the field and glean among the other ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. Now, Ruth understood that there were relatives of Naomi there. She understood that there were legalities that allowed for a, a redemption. That is, if someone had lost a husband, there was a possibility someone could exercise the initiative to marry that widow to provide children and provide for them. She understood this. It's not that she didn't know, but she still didn't know anyone, and she was a foreigner, and there were many other women. Still, she took the initiative based on her new citizenship, which was in God's kingdom in her mind, regardless of what she looked like as a foreigner, and she went, 
and she went to the fields, despite all the abuse one might get when they go. And we'll get to that in a moment, because there was, a, there was a, a traditional abuse that would happen to those who were gleaning, which is referred to at least slightly in the text. But look again at verse 2. Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now, before we go farther, you might be wondering what gleaning is and why Ruth is so sure she can do it. Well, this comes from a wonderful provision in the civil portion of God's law in the Old Testament. People were given distinct instructions. Landowners had to leave the edges of their fields standing for the purpose of providing for the poor and for widows, particularly. In fact, it says in Leviticus 19, 9 and 10, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And later in the second giving of the law, which is called Deuteronomy, we read also, it shall be for the fatherless and for the widow. So this was in particular the mercy of God to allow for those who would not have a means to provide for themselves. Not people who wouldn't work. People, they would have to go work to get it. I mean, that's the biblical faith-based initiative, is that they have to go work to do it, but provide for them, because they have no other way. And so you would leave the, the strips of barley or wheat or grapes, if it were a vineyard, you would leave some on the outside so that people could come and get and uh, also, as people would go through and reap, as you would have your workers go through and reap, uh, reap the stalks or reap the wheat, stuff would fall out on the ground. Instead of picking it up, you're supposed to just bundle your own sheaves, and that would be your harvest. And anything fell to the ground, gleaners could come along and pick up that grain. And what did they do with it? They ground it up and made bread with it. And we're talking simple sustenance, bread and water. That's the things that they ate. And so it was customary for this to happen, so Ruth goes out, and she takes the initiative, knows the law. She stands in the field and follows the reapers. As his seeds, literally, brothers and sisters, seeds fall to the ground. She picks those up. That's what a gleaner did. And uh, she would also, from the stalks in the side, but typically those would be difficult for someone to get, or a lot of people would be there. So she would just stand in the field and wait. And there would sometimes be lots and lots of people gathering in these, in these gleaning times. And a lot of times the workers weren't nice to them. They'd shoo them away or they'd beat them even if they had to to get them away. There were so many that would come and descend upon the field especially the women who were not able to defend themselves in the same way. They often were treated very harshly. She takes this initiative, goes after this, uh, after this opportunity, and I would suggest to you that it gives us a great picture of the kind of initiative we should have. I also would suggest to you as a side note that this is a wonderful model, however it may be employed, uh, to even follow today as so far as we talk about welfare and how people you know, get all upset about the idea of taking from one and giving to another. I understand this. I don't feel great about it either. But there is provision in the law of God for the poor, those who cannot provide for themselves, and the church should be about promoting that. And I think this is a wonderful prototype for that kind of thing. But we move on. The initiative of Ruth is shown very clearly, but also her humility. You have to take note of that. Uh, it took humility to go and glean grain with a bunch of other people who are trying to fight after literally scraps of grain. Uh, one modern commentator suggests that gleaning as a living is like trying to sustain oneself by collecting aluminum cans and turning them in. You spend all day trying to find the cans. You turn them in maybe to get enough to eat that day. It's literally hand to mouth, literally hand to mouth. You get enough to maybe fill a sack, which would be enough to maybe make a little piece of bread. And then you'd have to go back and do the thing the next day. It's very humble work, very humiliating. 
You'd work all day just to have enough to eat that day. Now, she had a particularly blessed day because of the providential hand of God in that moment. But normally, it was the kind of situation where you'd have to get back up the next day and get enough just, again, for that day. But look in verse 7, how she is so willing to be humble about it and do what it takes to eat. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. She worked very hard and she worked in humiliating work to do it. After Boaz pours out her kind his kindness upon her, look at verse 10. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? She doesn't beg him. She doesn't say anything unbecoming. She says, thank you for showing favor to me. Basically, letting me come into this field and to pick from it. I hope, brothers and sisters, that there is no service too menial for any of us. There's nothing more frustrating when you hear someone, especially a Christian, say, well, I, I wouldn't do that. I, I wouldn't do that. I, that's for someone else to do. Or I'll hire someone to clean that or cut that or, or whatever. Uh, it, it, what is too menial for us as believers? Uh, we are simply responding to God's grace to us, and we do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to sustain, to honor him by our efforts. It's not okay for Christians to be half-hearted, to not be willing to take on the difficult jobs. In fact, one of the things that made me most attracted to my wife was actually her humility. Obviously, her physical beauty was part of it, her character, everything about her, the enjoyment we had as friends together as we uh, built our relationship while we were dating. But one thing that just sealed the deal for me is when we both signed up, we both, I worked on a cleaning crew, uh, she worked on a cleaning crew as well, and we signed up after Founders Week, which is this week long of conferences to help to clean the old historic Moody Church in downtown Chicago. And I'll never forget, at one point, I was literally cleaning a toilet, and there was Sherry in the stall next to me cleaning that toilet. I thought, that's, that's a woman right there who is not afraid to get dirty. She's not afraid to do what it takes and doesn't care what people think about it. That's what she had to do to pay for college. She's going to do it. She wasn't, uh, she wasn't Miss Pris. She wasn't any of those kinds of things. She was willing to do the hard, humble work. Let me just say to young men, that's a wonderful trait to see someone. And young ladies, that someone would be willing to be humble in the work they, they do. Uh, you don't go right to the penthouse. you got to do humble, hard work. Ruth was willing to do it. See it in another example of other people. Look at Joseph's life. Uh, you know, he didn't start out in the penthouse. Uh, he was in the prison, in, in, in the pit. Humble work exhibited by Ruth. I would suggest she was all a fruit of her newfound loyalty to God. She'd do what it would take. Finally, please notice also her great work ethic. In verse 7, she says, Let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she had continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. She worked like a dog. She didn't take something for nothing. She asked for the opportunity to work hard, and then she went for it. Hard work will always be rewarded. It might require some patience, but if you do your work heartily, as unto God and not unto men, you will see the fruits of those labors shown. Not always monetarily. It could be by the satisfaction God gives in doing a job well done. This is where we get this idea of Protestant work ethic. You've heard of that. The original meaning had to do with working hard because we believe that we are primarily working for God. And that is expressly scriptural. In Colossians 3, verse 17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. We work for God ultimately, not for our employers. Now, we want to honor our employers as people God has placed over us, but we're working for God. So your work pace, your work effort, 
That's unto God, whatever your work pace is. Colossians 3.23 and 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Wonderful picture in her work ethic. She understood she was working for God. Now I want to shift characters for a moment because there's much that we can learn from the dealings of Boaz also as well. We might label his his particular focus the kindness and propriety of Boaz. Did you notice first with Boaz what his personal business practice was? Now again, I'm not saying this book is all about personal business practices, but at least note what a godly man does in relation to his workers. Check out these personal practices. Verse 4, he comes to the field where his workers are, and he comes from Bethlehem, and he says to the reapers, the Lord be with you, and they answered, the Lord bless you. There was a relationship that he had with his workers. They knew where he was spiritually, and he had had some influence over them that would make them respond immediately, the Lord bless you. Now, how many of you have had jobs like that, where the boss walks in and says, the Lord be with you, and you say, the Lord bless you, and you mean it? I hope a lot of you have had that opportunity. I hope if you are are an employer, you're that kind of employer. In fact, that's one of the things I learned from Boaz, is that he gives us this great example of one who has no dichotomy between his work life and his relationship with the Lord. That is a great lesson for us. I hope you don't have a dichotomy in your own life between what you do at work and what you do at home, what you do at church. Those in God's eyes are not separate spheres. There's one sphere of your life as a believer, and how you behave in that one sphere is what he's so concerned with. I don't mean to freak out your fellow employees by getting all over them about whether they know Jesus or not. I'm not saying that. Uh, That can be detrimental as well. But just live your faith before people and watch the opportunities arise. There was a man in my upbringing who I thought had one of the most thoroughgoing faiths. That is, he did not distinguish between what he did in his work life and his faith life. Uh, He is a soccer coach at the University of Buffalo now. That's what he does now. Uh, He was a professor there at University of Buffalo for many years. He was an elder in our church. And he just had this uh, presence about him. Everyone knew there's something different about him without him having to say it. And just recently, I read uh, the description in the catalog, the University of Buffalo catalog about him. And University of Buffalo is as liberal as any university you can imagine. And they don't usually like to probably put too many references to their professor's personal faith. Uh, But just listen to a little bit of the example. When you look at Mr. Tassie's, his, the little bio on him in, on the, uh, the UB website. It talks about all his career exploits. Following his career at Buffalo State, he went on to play professionally in both Canada and the United States, drafted by the Toronto Metros in 1971. He lists all these bragging points about what a great player he was and why he's a great coach now. Uh, the USSF B licensed coach with degrees in physical education in French. Tassie began his coaching career with Niagara University, then Buffalo State, and now the University of Buffalo. Tassie's soccer success in the field has carried to his two sons, and he talks about his two sons, good friends of mine and Nathan's. Then he said that the last phrase, this is unusual in a university, Tassie is happily married to his wife Kathleen, an assistant principal at Tonawanda Middle School. He believes that the essence of his coaching and teaching philosophy can be found in Colossians 3, 23 to 24. What is that again? Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Subtle but powerful witness. He doesn't have a dichotomy between his work world and his relationship with the Lord. Boaz comes to the field of his workers and says, the Lord be with you. And they say, the Lord bless you. Also, notice the wonderful protection. And honestly, at this point, this is where it gets kind of interesting, because you wonder, why is he so nice to Ruth? There's nothing wrong going on here. 
he is obviously drawn to Ruth's character. He knows who she is and what she's done. We, we see that. And he gives her all sorts of special privileges. Look at the protection he gives her in verse 8. Listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be in the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And this is a reference not to some impropriety that could be committed on the part of the men, but rather they wouldn't beat her or abuse her to get her away from gleaning there. That's what the reference means. In verse 15, she rose to glean. Boaz instructed his young men, let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles. This is unheard of. Pull out some of the, from the bundles that you have already wrapped and, get, and leave them for her to glean. Don't rebuke her. Special privileges that he pours out on her. How about the permission for Ruth to glean really excessively? In verse 8, Boaz said to Ruth, Now my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. His young women being daughters, uh, uh, women within his, his clan. Keep with my family. What a permission. What, what an allowance. And then water for the water. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping in verse 9. Go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink that the young men have drawn. So not only can you come here in a privileged way and work with my family, but you also can drink from our water as well. Then he pronounces a blessing upon Ruth. In verse 12, for the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He even gives her a meal. In verse 14, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Kind of looking ahead of that picture of Jesus feeding the 5,000, there was enough to be left over. People had nothing, now they had more than they could eat. She had nothing, now she had more than she could eat. What a turn of events. What a turn. Special gleaning privileges are even granted. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. She gleaned 30 pounds of barley. 30 pounds, that's a lot more than anyone would normally. Maybe a pound is what you would get. You know how light grain is? 30 pounds of it she was able to glean. What a beautiful picture, and you can only imagine. If the story had not happened so quickly, what would have happened, my guess, is that she would have wondered, does he like me? And then she would have gone back and talked to Naomi. Do you think he liked me? He did this, this, and this. And Naomi saying, like, yes, of course. And she, I don't know. Yeah, I'm telling you. you know, you've seen that play out throughout history many times. Yet God and his providence worked amazingly to turn the fortunes of Naomi and Ruth just in one day of gleaning. What a beautiful picture that we see of kindness and propriety in Boaz. And then finally, finally for Naomi, we see spiritual restoration. She recognizes God's graciousness. This is a clear indicator that she, in her theology, in her understanding, is starting to turn now back towards appreciating what God has done for her. And more importantly, what God is doing for his glory on a wider scale through her in that situation. Verse 19, and her mother-in-law said to her, can you just imagine? Where did you glean today? 30 pounds. And where have you worked? Verse 19 again. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She knew something had to happen. She knew this didn't happen. I mean, a foreigner to go into some field and come back with 30 pounds, someone took notice. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked is Boaz. And Naomi immediately, it's in her mind. She knows who this Boaz is. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, 
May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. There is a turn now in the heart and mind of Naomi that we'll see throughout the rest of the story as she recognizes or starts to see the hand of God's providence working in a way that's different than what she has experienced so far. Not just any man would this foreign daughter-in-law of hers meet, but Boaz, one of the redeemers. This concept of a redeemer is so crucial and critical to the rest of the story, and even more so, it's crucial and critical to understanding how we have a redeemer. One of the many ways in which this book fits into the greater plan of redemption history. So we have before us three characters, Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi. All of them, significant changes are occurring. God is directing. Things are moving towards his glory. But also do you recognize, brothers and sisters, that in the midst of God's glorious plan working itself out, there are individual lives that are being strengthened and encouraged. There's a love story playing out, a wonderful love story. I hope that what we don't miss is that the basis for all of this playing out like it's playing out is that one simple phrase that Boaz says about Ruth. You have taken refuge under God's wings. Whatever happens to you providentially in life, the pains, the toils, the tragedies, the real essential question that we have to constantly wrestle with and ask ourselves is have we taken refuge under God's wings? We live 70, 80, maybe 90 years on this earth, trillions, trillions for eternity. Have we taken refuge under God's wings? That's the question for us that's presented so wonderfully in the life of Ruth and evidenced by the fruit of her faith. Let us pray. Lord, we are thankful for this wonderful picture of providence again, but all that is wrapped up in this providence, the details of the relationship with Ruth and Boaz, the details of the relationship with Naomi. Lord, difficult times for these women. Yet what a great picture of how you can turn things and point them towards redemption. Lord, we turn to you when our foundations are shaking, only to learn that it is you who are shaking them. Pray, Lord, that we would draw strength from this wonderful story of providence, the story of love, the story of suffering. I pray, Lord, that we would be different even this week as we consider how faith works itself out in our lives and in your plan. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.